It's the one word a pampered rich girl never wants to hear. We've lost everything? Not quite. I own a pumpkin farm. A Hallmark Channel Fall Harvest original movie. Oh, no. Oh, no. You all right, Miss Stone? About losing your place. Finding your way home. Let's be honest, you're a city girl. I'm not so sure about that anymore. Harvest Moon. since games aren't really his jam. So I'm here with some fellow graduate students from Duke. You guys want to say hi? Hey. Hello. All right, we have Hannah, David, and Chris, which I will go ahead and let them introduce themselves. You want to go, Hannah? Yes, I am Hannah. I am almost always here anyway. I played Harvest Moon a long time ago, so here we are. Yeah, and uh, David, you're in classics and he's a PhD student at Duke as well. Hi, guys. So we had some technical difficulties, and so you should be hearing David's voice introducing himself as a graduate student from Duke University studying classics and a current avid player of Fallout 4 who has been using the farming simulation aspect of the game to de-stress from job applications and general academic life. Unfortunately, his audio dropped out, so when you hear the random voice that is not Hannah, Katya, or Chris, that is David. And then we have Chris, who's actually um, another PhD student in the English department with Hannah and I at Duke. Yeah, I am a second year PhD student at Duke. Um, Big fan of Stardew Valley games like that. Big fan of Minecraft. Also of just like general open world kind of games and doing um, things in those games that aren't necessarily like main quest type things, like just running around Skyrim trying to collect as many deer pelts as I can or something like that. Yeah. And, and they're helping oh. you cope on the job market, right, Chris? Yeah, I'm on the job market. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> Uh, be glad, be very glad. Um, yeah, I know Stardew Valley has been how I've been like decompressing from the job market. Um, so this week we wanted to talk about uh, Stardew Valley and farm simulators because last month in October, Chucklefish released Stardew Valley on iOS. Um, the game's been around for a long time, but it's been mainly on um, the consoles and PC. Um, so now it's a mobile game. And I, as I mentioned in the blog post, I'm not big into farm sims. I feel like they've been having like, they have been having their moment repeatedly for like the last decade and I've just sort of never got into it because microtransactions are always seem to be a big part of it and microtransactions are evil but 
I'm interested in why exactly farm simulators in particular seem to be really appealing to a wide variety of gamers, um, and especially people who wouldn't typically play a video game. Um, and as I mentioned on a blog post, farm simulators, specifically Animal Crossing, which is a game that Stardew Valley was based partially on, have been like a big part of the theory of video games and how video games portray messages. You can definitely, if you're interested in that, read more on the blog post. We'll probably bring it back in later, the idea, uh, the theorist Ian Bogos and procedural rhetoric. But basically, he uses the game Animal Crossing to make the argument that when players interact with rules and systems, they're getting messages. And he argues that farm simulators and specifically Animal Crossing have this kind of agrarian anti-capitalism message. And I do want to get into that later, but I think I actually want to start with this more broader question um, that Chris and I were talking about a few days ago of what exactly makes a video game or a game more broadly, because we were talking about whether or not farm simulators actually are games. Yeah, I think we can sort of, you know, get into that question more as we as we talk about it, obviously. But I, I mean, just to like the genesis of that question was us talking about Stardew Valley and asking what part of Stardew Valley is the game? Is it the farming? Is it the mining? Is it going around the village and befriending the various villagers? Is it um, going to the casino? There are so many different elements of that game that can attract your attention. Wait, there's a casino? Yeah. Um, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm only in year two of Stardew Valley. (laughs) I I still can't figure out how to fish on the... Yeah, anyway, sorry. Oh, God. Fishing, I hate, I hate video, can I just say, I hate video games with fishing. It's so annoying. I've never enjoyed video game fishing. I don't like it. Sidebar end. Um, but it's, it's just, there are so many of those different elements that feel gamified, but which is the one that is the core feature of the game? Like, what is the main goal, I guess? And then I guess that presupposes that what makes a game is having some sort of end goal in mind. Right. And I mean, I think especially because there aren't a lot of obvious, like I just finished uh, completing, so for people who maybe haven't played the game, Stardew Valley is a farm simulator where basically you're going around farming, you can befriend, uh, as Chris mentioned, you can befriend the townsfolk and things like that, but there isn't really like quests in the traditional sense. There's like objectives you can choose to do and you get like gold in exchange for them, but they aren't like achievements like they might be in other games. And there's no, or at least seems to me, and maybe Chris, you can... uh, Uh, say more about this there doesn't seem to be like a concrete goal in the game so when i mentioned i just finished the bundles like there is sort of a uh, there is a plot point where you can complete these bundles of different items and that unlocks new features of the game but you can realistically play the game and quite enjoy yourself with never doing that well whenever i played harvest moon back in the day and like harvest moon you know like came out in the late 90s originally what was interesting ish is that i guess this is still true when you beat games you like get a credit sequence and it congratulates you Mm -hmm. uh what (laughs) what was weird about harvest moon was if you married someone as you can do in stardew valley Mm -hmm. they would give you an end credit sequence but then it would take you back to the game and you would continue on doing stuff like the big goal in some ways was to get married if you got married yeah like the big goal in some ways was to get married but then you like, could, oh. could, I mean, you, you like, it, it, like I, in some ways beating the game was game married, but also like after you beat the game, you could like have a child, which freaked me out. Um, or 
and you can continue to like grow stuff and raise your cows or whatever. But like right. the big kind of obvious like obstacle to overcome is to like get some chick to marry you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the question that like Chris has raised is just like gets to the core of like why do we play these games? Because it's not the same reason we would play like a shooter, for example, or something that's more competitive with rankings and like there's a competitive quantitative aspect to it. Like these are just sort of like you're dinking around on your computer. Well, that's, that's a very good point. Um, and I think, uh, maybe one relevant comparison and it's just something I heard on the news today, right? The, uh, the world chess championship is, is going on right now. It looks like there might be the first American champion in like 50 years. And some people say that chess is a sport, right? Uh, and there's always that question, you know, what's the difference between a sport and a game? And I think you're trying to answer a similar question here, right? What right. makes something a game? Yeah. And so when I was uh, thinking about this and prepping for the episode, there are two things that stick out to me that are from game studies. So uh, there's this book that's uh, quite old, actually. It's from, I think, 1938 uh, or thereabouts called Homo Ludens. And it's actually about game studies um, and about games more broadly, um, including sports, actually. And I can never print. I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name properly. Um, so I'm just gonna call his first name, Johan. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's talking about so the structure of games and what makes a game a game in part. And he argues that culture and society actually emerges through play. But he says what distinguishes the game from everyday life is this thing that he calls the magic circle, um, which is something that we still use in game studies. But the magic circle is basically the idea that there's a space um, and it can be an intangible space or it can be something physical like an actual, like, like say, for example, for a play playground and the idea is what uh, is that what distinguishes that space within the magic circle is that there are special rules and meanings that apply that give actions significance and they give them significance that they don't have in everyday life one way to think about them is that there's sort of these temporary worlds within the ordinary world that are distinguished by a particular set of rules so like for example kicking a ball is just kicking a ball in like everyday space but within the magic circle of the game kicking a ball in a particular direction is an achievement that say scores a goal um and so the idea is for uh, with in this definition is that what makes a game a game is the idea that there are rules that give actions a distinct significance they wouldn't normally have like that line from the big lebowski uh this <laughs> this is not nom this is bowling there are rules right and so like the idea that there are rules and generally speaking whether it's like in a video game it's the player playing the game sort of like consenting to these rules in that way or say like it's kids playing tag like everyone agrees upon the rules and they can be changed or they can be disputed or whatever but the rules are the rules but the and but they're distinguishing a special kind of space if that makes sense i mean and that's a super broad definition but i think within that i to me at least we start to understand why Farming simulators are still a game, even though they don't have the same kind of achievement thing, because it does seem like you're doing something that, I don't know, like, does, I guess it's the question is, does farming virtual carrots have meaning? Well, I think that's um, what I was interested in when, you know, in posing that question of what is a game is what, you know, makes these games so compelling, and what I find, you know, interesting 
with you know more recent like AAA titles that are getting released like Fallout 4 and Red Dead Redemption 2 that have these really expansive I think in the terminology of those games, mini games, right? The farming and hunting and things like that, that people find, I read a review of Red Dead Redemption 2 and the only thing the guy talked about, it wasn't a real review. It was more of just a blog, I guess. Um, But the only thing the guy talked about was how enjoyable it was to split wood in Red Dead Redemption 2 and do campfire or camp chores rather than following along with the main quest line. Yeah. And I mean, in Fallout, I'm definitely, uh, I know a lot of people aren't a fan of the farming simulators in Fallout. I actually find it like kind of meditative. It's like a nice, I like, I find myself, I often opt for the farm simulator in Fallout when it's like, I don't really want to get involved in a quest and like, yeah, farming almost becomes more of like stress relieving or just like wanting to have like a calmer moment after a really stressful day when I don't necessarily want to be shooting bad guys. So instead I start building settlements. And that I think is part of the appeal of that kind of activity is that there's a sense that you, that the stakes are low. There isn't a ton of pressure, but you're also Mm -hmm. performing an action that ends with not a material consequence, but like some facsimile of a material consequence, like a virtual carrot popping out of the ground or something right. like that. Yeah, and, and I think uh, for me, I think the, the biggest appeal of the, the farming and also the uh, construction and the, the settlement building is that um, you're able to, you, you know what the result is going to be from uh, putting a carrot in the ground and you have these uh, like individual predictable results that you yeah. can consistently get. And then the challenge that you create for yourself is, you know, what would, can I plant uh, a perfect square of you know, nine by nine carrots? Yeah. Or can I build this, you know, tower that has enough beds for everyone in it? Right. I mean, to, I guess, kind of get at something you talked about in the blog post about Stardew Valley, Katya. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys know about this, know about this, but uh, I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> if you haven't listened to the last episode on politics and Thanksgiving and also Mississippi, you should give it a listen to get that inside joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I do mention it a lot. Uh, so I'm, I'm from Mississippi and my grandparents both had farms and multiple times during the course of graduate school or the job market or whatever, when things have gotten really stressful, I've threatened to get in my car and drive to my grandparents' farm and just stay there. And I, I, like, you know, like what we talked about in the blog post is like, you know, uh, Stardew Valley like literally opens with someone in a like boring corporate office job and their grandfather is like, hey, kid, whenever you decide that you want to get away from this life, like, there is a farm waiting for you. And one of the questions was, you know, like, are, like, the is the average, like, person going to pick up on this kind of, like, anti-corporate narrative? And, I mean, honestly, like, I, I admit mm-hmm. I'm a PhD student saying this, but I think so, because I, I wasn't even thinking about that when I started playing the game. And I've always, like, you know, had my secret farm fantasy as a person. And, I mean... Isn't, like, half of American literature really about, like, getting away from it all and, like, going and sitting out by the pond or something? 
Also Green Acres. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, but I guess the thing that I find really interesting is I don't know that anyone who finds farm simulators super compelling actually went to work on a farm. Oh, no, it's just a fantasy. Right. I mean, it actually reminded me. So one of the games, um, I can't remember if I remember to mention the blog post or not, that I think is really interesting is uh, there was a university that, that I believe last year made an adaptation of Walden into a video game. And anyone who's read Thoreau's Walden knows that farming, specifically bean farming, is a really big part of the text and for Thoreau, like a return to agrarianism and a return to sort of living off the land is really important for sort of his, his philosophical moment uh, in that text. And they sort of adapt that into a video game. But it's also really interesting because in some ways I think that Thoreau is actually doing the same thing, albeit obviously uh, not with a video game, because he's kind of playing at farming because there's all these references even in the text yeah. that he's like his mom is still doing his laundry his sister's baking him pies so <laughs> he isn't really detached from the world like he's playing at farming um and playing like and not to say it's not significant um in a way that i don't think that we can necessarily say that like playing a video game even though it's a very different experience like doesn't have meaning but it also isn't the same thing as like having an actual farm uh, yeah as someone who literally has like harvested crops on a small scale during the summer on my grandparents' farm versus like harvesting crops in a video game. Let me tell you, harvesting crops in a video game is way more fun and way more soothing, especially in Mississippi heat. Oh yeah, absolutely. I used to, I used to be an agricultural worker and like have to get up at like five o'clock in the morning to go like pick produce. It's not a fun job. It's super hard work. Well, I, I just, um, the, the, the comment about Walden, uh, which also I guess has a fallout four connection too. Um, but what does, what does Thoreau say about his, uh, his project? He says he, he's going into the woods to live deliberately. Yeah. Right? And, and that means that he's thinking that by doing this, he's going to be able to what have a more direct connection between his intention and his environment or something. Uh, Mm-hmm. And that that sort of sounds like he's envisioning that there will be a more comprehensible set of rules by which he is living and that he will be able to accomplish things uh, more directly. Right. And I think that maybe for for many people who actually have had to live in the wild or or who do uh, who do um, make a living by farming, there is so much that you don't have control over. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think that this idea that, that Thoreau is sort of playing a game uh, has a lot of merit to it. Yeah, because I think even the idea of like, I mean, even what you're saying about farming, I think also goes back to the notion we brought up a couple times. It's like these games are appealing because they're predictable. Like, you know, what's going to happen. I know that if I put, you know, I don't know if I put if I put my cabbage in the ground it will become cabbage leaves i know if i put the truffle in the truffle oil machine it makes truffle oil uh like i know it's gonna happen which in some ways makes it seem like it would be very boring very quickly but i don't know i find it and i i feel like i'm i mean and, and just to expand on that it's not just predictable but it's also completely safe not just because it's virtual um but right. because like in stardew valley if you don't um I think if you don't water your crops for long enough, they might die. But if you don't, if you go a few days without watering your crops, it's just that they won't produce whatever you need to harvest from them. And if you don't feed your animals, 
they will never die. They just won't produce yeah. what you need to harvest from them. But that's totally different than Harvest Moon because my chickens did totally die. And that was sad. Oh, that's too yeah, bad. Um, yeah. And so, like, it's it's interesting that there's the, like, uh, Stardew Valley, um, if we haven't said, is partially based on Harvest Moon. And it was partially mm-hmm. developed to improve on some aspects of Harvest Moon, supposedly. Yeah, the developer, Eric Barone, basically wanted to make, yeah, wanted to make a farm simulator that pulls from like a bunch of different games. And one of his stated intentions was to make the sort of subliminal messages, as you, uh, if you will, in those games more explicit. But like, what what is it that like is improved upon that, you know, you don't face any consequences really for not feeding your animals, like, is an improvement that they don't die? It's certainly more soothing, but... Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, this is something, again, I talk about in the blog post. I think this is related to what Hannah's getting at. So the idea um, I referred to at the beginning of the episode is this theorist called Ian Bogost, um, and he comes up with this term he calls procedural rhetoric, which is the idea, and we've referenced um, this idea on multiple episodes in the past, but it's the idea that processes themselves so like sets of rules um are arguments and so by engaging with or learning a system of rules like a video game um the player is receiving a sort of argument or message and so what hannah like so yeah what hannah's referencing is like the idea it's sort of like when you change the rule when you change the mechanic that you know the animals don't die when you don't feed them that is suggesting a different argument than in a mechanic where the animals do die. I don't know what that shift exactly symbolizes because yeah, that's interesting actually. I don't know. Well, to, to think about another kind of farming uh, of the gold variety in MMOs, <laughs> right. Um, is, is oh, part yeah. of the appeal in those games that if your character dies, you know, it, it has real consequences for your experience of, of the game, right? If, if your character dies, you respawn back at the city, you lose all your stuff. If you want your stuff back, you have to remember where you were and go find it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I I wonder the 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 deal with animals di- uh, animals dying or your character dying or your buildings falling down or whatever. I I wonder if those make it feel less like a game and more like real life. Mm-hmm. And is that uh, aspect of ver- verisimilitude, or I guess what you imagine to be verisimilitude, something that makes it more appealing or less appealing? That probably depends on the kind of player that you are and the kind of experience that you want out of it, right? Uh, yeah. But, but there's this this question um, that I think uh, is is very much tied into the central question of what is what makes something a game or not? Um, you know, what makes something a game versus just real life you know uh like when you uh when in your classroom when you gamify an activity right does that mean that really all learning is a game or is actually a gamified activity just a part of real life i mean i don't know so i think i mean just going back to sort of the idea of the magic circle i think they would suggest sort of both actually like it's that the game is a specialized part of daily life um, so it's not separate from it or distinct exactly in the sense that it's detached, but it's, mm-hmm. it's where like a special set of rules are applying. That doesn't mean that like, you know, it isn't part of your daily experience, but it is suggesting that in some ways, like the consequences are different and mean something different. So like, yeah, in like a classroom environment, if you've made a game of like a gamified exercise, 
for some reason, my mind is going to like this weird economic simulation I did in high school. Like you can learn some of the rules and processes of the, like the American economy, but like there are no consequences. So you can sort of like be a robber baron and not be actively ruining people's lives. But yeah, to get back to the sort of like the animals dying example, I mean, I think that's really interesting because I mean, especially because Stardew Valley was intended to be more, have more explicit messages. And what Hannah brings up is a really interesting point is that at least like thinking reductively, like, so in games where the animals do die, if you don't feed them, like suggests like your actions or in this case, your inaction has consequences. And so in some way, it's like, it's making almost more of an environmental point of like, you are responsible in some way for like the people around you. Whereas somewhat in contradiction to the intended effect, like it seems like we're pointing out that Stardew Valley, like actually is suggesting your con- your actions may not matter. Cause you, you can, as you pointed out, like not just with animals, but with quests or crops or like whatever, you can take your sweet time and it doesn't really seem to matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I just think that part of that, I haven't played Harvest Moon, but I think one element that makes Stardew Valley interesting uh, and, and, and engrossing is that it isn't, and again, this goes back to my question of what is the game of Stardew Valley? And I don't think the game of Stardew Valley is necessarily the farming. I think it might mm-hmm. be doing the bundle packages, It might, which involves so much other stuff in the game, like mining and fishing and um, foraging for other crops. So in that way, uh, even though we're focusing on the farming aspect of Stardew Valley in reference to procedural mm-hmm. rhetoric, I don't know if that's necessarily a fair representation of like the core theme of the game. Yeah. Well, and especially because, and Chris, maybe you can speak more to this since you, it sounds like you've played Stardew Valley more than I have, at least. I find the relationship dynamics odd. Yeah. And sort of in a similar way that dealing with the animals is odd. Um, so for folks who haven't played the game, you building, if you build relationships with people in the town, like you kind of get perks, like in game recipes for like making items. Um, and like occasionally you'll get things in the mail, like just like gifts or money, um, which is helpful in the game. Um, but the way you sort of gain their trust is like sometimes by fulfilling favors or quests but more frequently it's by giving them gifts yes. and this happens in harvest moon too this isn't this originates in harvest moon and it, right i think it's a pretty yeah. common and mechanic. it's it's like looking back on it it's super weird to me now because i now as a graduate student have done a lot of like research on anthropology and exchange and like the marriage market and you know like mm-hmm. even someone like uh Marcel Maus uh, says something like, uh, in giving gifts, because this is what we do in this podcast, we talk about video games and then quote random thinkers. Um, you know, I mean, you, know. you know, gifts are always part of an exchange. So like you have an obligation to give gifts and you have an obligation to receive them and there's always an exchange going on. And then when you pair it with marriage in particular in both Harvest Moon and Stardew Valley, it becomes a weird, like... It's a marriage economy. Yeah, which is not... Like yeah, which is, you know, not yeah. Yeah, which I mean, and again, for folks who are the blog posts, like Ian Bogos talks about Animal Crossing, which like granted is a different game, but still like is an anti-capitalist sort of 
game uh, narrative and Stardew Valley, like especially sort of with the beginning of like the anti-corporatist thing, like clearly has elements of that. But I think there is this sort of core contradiction of the idea that you can build relationships entirely off of commodities would seem to be in tension with that idea. And the weird thing about Harvest Moon and Stardew Valley is you can romance as many people as you want. Yeah. Can like, you? I, like, like you can't, you can only marry one person, but you can like get them all to like you. And I know because when I play, but can you be in a relationship with multiple people? So like in Harvest Moon, like you just like got their heart up. Like when I played to like a certain point yeah. and you could just make everyone really, really, really like you. But like you couldn't have you couldn't marry multiple people. I think there's like an additional step of boyfriend girlfriend in Stardew Valley. Gotcha. But yeah, I have yeah in Stardew Valley. I don't know if you can actually. There's this thing where you like give them like I mean speaking of the marriage economy, you like give them flowers to like initiate a romance. I don't know if you can do that with more than one character. I haven't tried. You can get divorced in Stardew Valley too, which is really you can. Yeah, and then you can turn. I'm learning so much. And then you can turn your children into dogs. <laughs> Excellent. Wait, what? Yeah. Like, what if you? I haven't. I have not pursued this you, at all. <laughs> I, I looked this up because I'm not that far along the game. But apparently, once you get divorced, you like the, the ex spouses will one have no memory of their previous marriage, so you can like date and remarry them if you want. Two children from the marriage can be turned into doves at the witch's hut and exchanged for like a prismatic shard, which I don't really know what that is. And it removes the children from the game. So, and even if you're planning to get a divorce and like your spouse or like whatever, uh, are you or expecting a child the the kid won't be born or delivered, which again goes into like the no consequences thing of this game. Super weird. Anyway, my mind is what that is. Okay. I wonder actually, so how do you think the like relationship, dating aspect of these games uh, might be another facet of the same thing that is motivating interest in the, in the farming uh, construction aspect of it. Like the idea that there are no consequences. Yeah. But, but also the idea that this is something where there, there sort of is a set of like procedures that you can follow according to the rules of the game. Right. That, that will sort of develop this thing because I know, I mean, I, 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 as I said, I haven't played Stardew Valley. I've played all those Bioware games, uh, starting with like Baldur's Gate two, where they, they introduced this idea of if you, if you do a certain sequence of actions and say a certain things, uh, say a certain sequence of things in dialogue, then you will be able to have a relationship with, uh, NPC X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Uh, this is something that came up in a previous episode we did on sexuality um, in video games. And like, we were talking more specifically about dating simulators, but yeah, that like this idea of in a medium that is particularly gender uh, challenged, we'll say it's really complicated. Like, I don't know that like, so since we're talking about sort of procedural rhetoric, I don't know that there's a way that in a game you could actually model things like relationships without it becoming highly problematic and kind of, yeah, kind of like Hannah was saying, like replicating a much more like Victorian marriage economy than we necessarily want to associate with modern day relationships. Because, I mean, the way that programming is, it's like the way that you, it's like, yeah, so like the, the easy way, the, I mean, the visual representation in Stardew Valley is the idea that you, you perform an action, which in this case is giving gifts, um, or saying that it also can be like in a cut scene, like saying the right, a certain dialogue option um, gets you points or whatever, but you fulfill an action that basically scores you points 
uh, it increases a numerical value in the programming, which will eventually unlock other features, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know if there's a way to have relationships in a way that feels less problematic. Yeah, I... I, right, because I, I, you can't, like, gamify true emotional response, right? Like, you can't have that procedural thing that David was talking about, that set of rules Yeah. that, you know, I don't know how you could do that, you know? Yeah, yeah though, I will say that... Yeah despite us like not having an answer to how to like quote unquote make it better or whatever the fact that these games are anti-corporate in many ways some of them much more explicitly than others and yet lean on a marriage market you know really like undermines the anti-corporate narrative or at least puts that you know economic exchange onto you know gender dynamics and it's Weird. Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder because part of the reason why so many of these games seem to be really compelled by making like these sort of anti-corporate, anti-capitalist sort of argument is that they're critiquing a system, like they're critiquing a set of rules and procedures that happen like in the real world, even if they don't happen in the game world. And so they're replicating an actual system in the world through video games. It's also, I mean, there's also examples of video games that are sort of like critiquing government or critiquing business uh, and like lots of other systems. And I wonder if like what ends up happening and that in critiquing these other systems, they're actually just making a critique of systems like they're suggesting i mean it's basically if you play stardew valley and especially if you have a qualms with like the marriage market it's just like you're not having it's not just you have qualms with capitalism or the marriage market it's that you're seeing the inherent limitations of systems and of rules that could be there's a part no there, that, that's like hopefully right yeah. hopefully the game is that smart about what it's doing <laughs> um but there's something about well, I don't know that yeah. that's intended. I'm just saying it's like that might be part of like when you when you when when like I'm dissatisfied by certain mechanics in Stardew Valley, I am seeing the limitations that rules can't account right. for like and so think, many things. But you know well, what I'm saying? There's something about Stardew Valley that we haven't mentioned, which I think mm-hmm. is relevant to this, which is so part of the game as we've sort of touched upon is the town you move to, Stardew Valley, has a community center that's broken down and abandoned. And you go inside and there are these weird sprite little creatures that guard various things. And you give them gifts, basically. And as you give them okay. gifts, they unlock different things in the town. And when you've done all the bundles, and it revitalizes this abandoned community center. There's, Mm -hmm. um, and so the gifts that you give are things that you find in the environment around you or things that you grow on your farm, things that you dig up in the mine, things like that. And they're mentioned, I think, like as like the beginning of the game when this mechanic is introduced to you, they're mentioned as like proof that you are like kind of one with the forest. When you visit the wizard. But there's another way Mm -hmm. to unlock those bundles, right? which is right. the the town is sort of being preyed upon. The local economy is being preyed upon by Joja Mart, which is like a Walmart stand-in. Mm-hmm. And if you, I think it's sort of, I, I don't really, I, I'd be interested to hear what, you know, you have to say about this, Katya. It's just like, like, I think mm-hmm. there's a way that it's, it's almost like a, a trap door, you know, or a shortcut where if you kind of get, are playing along in the game and you get kind of bored of collecting 
all these various things, you can go to the Joja Mart and purchase a membership and mm-hmm. that will change the uh, requirements to unlock things in the community center from being stuff that you collect to just money. And it goes from, right. So yeah. it goes, so it's like explicitly goes from this, like, okay, you're going to collect a bunch of commodities and hand them in for your reward to you're going to pay for the rewards that you want. Yeah. And I mean, I think somebody, a commenter, I believe it was Brandon brought up the idea that, uh, it actually seems a little bit silly to allow the sort of corporation to take over the town or whatever, because I mean, I actually, I I think he makes an interesting point is the idea that like you can get the same rewards either way. And so the game seems to be suggesting that there's like a moral incentive to collect the bundles to give to the little forest sprites rather than the corporation. Um, But I was also wondering, I also don't know that it's actually easier um, because I think the game sort of depicts this as a shortcut, like where you could actually progress through the game faster, unlock things faster if you went the monetary route, which I don't think is true. I think it Um, would depend on when you sort of get invested in that mechanic. Um, Like if you are, if you have a pretty late game farm and you're producing things that are, that you can sell at a high, you know, like, I mean, I've, I haven't done this, but I've seen farms where it's just like, they have uh, the screen filled with the most expensive crop you can produce and they make like a million dollars every day or something. Um, That's insane. Yeah. I don't have the time to invest. (laughs) I have a lot of time to invest in this game, but not that much. Um, And then I, but I can see that, but there is this, because some of the, um, some of the bundles are, um, are sort of locked at certain times of the year. Cause there's like a spring yeah. crop bundle. There's the you winter. You do have forge. to kind yeah. of know. Yeah. And I mean, I think that even goes to the point of like the weird forest sprites, like talking about in the beginning, you have to know the forest. Like you do have to understand the game and learn the game on a much deeper, deeper level in order to fulfill the bulk, the, the bundles, because it's not necessarily, there's not, a lot of really detailed tutorials. A lot of the things in this game you have to sort of stumble upon. Yeah. Um, at least in the iOS version. I imagine that's true of others as well. Uh, and there's a pretty robust online community um, around Stardew Valley in particular. Like there's apps you can download that will give you guides. I've definitely looked up stuff before. Um, which, I mean, even the fact that there's an extended online community that comes out of that particular difficulty almost seems to replicate what the game seems what the game is kind of going for like the game is posing this dichotomy between like either you do the like the corporate thing going the corporate route is like a a literal rejection of the community because if you buy the membership there the mayor of the town which you meet uh basically at the beginning of the game mentions offhandedly that if one more person buys a membership he's just going to give up and sell the community center to the joja corporation so it's made explicit to you that you're making a choice of what this town is going to look like. And it does not appear to me as though there's any material difference in your, your gameplay. If you go one route or the other, like you still have access to all the same options. Um, I imagine like some cut, like, I mean, certain cutscenes are obviously going to be different and certain dialogue options are obviously going to be different. Um, but there's no material effect on you, the player and your experience, as far as I'm aware so there's this only this sort of like implied commitment to some kind of nebulous moral ideal. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, we, we had a comment from a 
listener, um, Brandon. Yeah. Um, who, you know, kind of says something similar. He, he focused on animal crossing a little bit. And then for Stardew Valley, he said that he thinks a large part of the game has to do with game mechanics. Uh, he mm-hmm. brought up Bioshock as an example. Um, yeah. you know, it enforces that are you good or are you bad with um, a morality karma system based off whether you harvest Adam from the Little Sisters. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, harvesting grants instant gratification reward. Um, but, you know, there's not a strong argument game mechanics-wise for harvesting the sisters, and so any real moral dilemma ceases to exist, and that kind of feels the same way when it comes to Stardew Valley and well, the choice. Yeah, I would say it doesn't exist, but it's appealing to a moral system that's outside of the game. Yeah. Like, but, I think Stardew yeah. Valley... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but, you know, I think, I think that's, like, kind of what he's getting at. Like, the... Yeah. If, you, if you don't... I mean, like, the four of us, in different ways, think about, quote-unquote, big questions through some sort of critical thinking every day because it's what we're paid to do in a lot of ways. But if I just handed my sister, um, who's an artist, the game and said, go to town, kid, she probably would just be like, all right, I want to like grow some crops and play with my cat and get a sheep. I don't know. Are there, I mean, at least so, so cursory Googling around the online community around Stardew Valley it doesn't seem like a lot of people go the Joja Corporation route. Like there does seem, and I think part of it is because the frame of it is that your character is dissatisfied with their life in a corporation, which yeah. actually happens to be the same corporation. Yeah. Um, so you're already, and like various, the way that the, the Joja employees are characterized and things like that. Like you're sort of, you're encouraged to not think well of this corporation. And it seems like most players sort of like follow that. Most players are more excited about the little forest sprites, which I mentioned were basically sentient jelly beans. Most people like to sell sentient jelly beans. And that's like the side that they take insofar as they're taking sides. Yeah, but I, I guess like in some ways it might depend on how much attention you're paying to the narrative of the game too. Because right. you have the option to skip the intro, skip this, skip that. So you you could just kind of be like, whatever, and stumble yeah. upon things. And I'm I'm not saying that people choose the corporation over the cute little sprites. I mean, why would you? They're cute little sprites, you know? But the game in some ways is like not forcing you to really like think about these questions 100% because you do have, and I suppose this could be seen as like a choice too. You do have the option to like skip the storyline stuff. Yeah. I think this is also related to the question, like Chris, you brought up the people who like are very into like, like the the sort of the, the optimized farm. Yeah. This was something I find really fascinating about the wiki sort of like online community is like the entire idea of optimization seems to be completely counter to what Stardew Valley is trying to do. Like, like you mentioned earlier, there is no real end goal. Yeah. And I think that's um, like also a point relevant to your discussion of the marriage market is that what I find, what I (laughs) found myself, I'll admit that I'm a cheat um, going online to do the most was what I've played is figuring out people's daily schedules so that I can give them a gift and figuring out, um, because like different items, people have different reactions to different items. So, you know, somebody likes honey and somebody else likes mayonnaise and somebody really likes purple mushrooms, but you don't really know that unless you do trial and error with everything or look up these guides. And I think, uh, that the, that the guides do, sort of change the culture of the game in a way. 
when we think about, you know, what kind of, like, how is it being played? And how so? Just because, you know, whether we're talking about it theoretically or, um, whatever the, you know, whatever we can glean from the introductory cutscene about the, the game's opinion or the game developer's opinion of a kind of corporatized culture, it ends up, Mm -hmm. it ends up being a part of that kind of just like, everything's reduced to commodity. Everything's reduced to finding the short-term benefit as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, and that's why other than like the things that sort of like, I want to like give gifts to particular people. I've tried to, I've like kind of avoided the cheat sheety kind of stuff as much as possible, right. but cause I think it kind of just like, for me at least destroys the experience of the game, but I do find it really interesting. Like, the, I remember just seeing something that was like somebody like was like, oh, this is how you can optimize the greenhouse yeah. to have the most amount of stuff in the greenhouse and like specifically like the tree placement. Yeah. And it was just like, this is so weird because I have like four trees in my greenhouse and I already feel like I have so much stuff that I have to like collect that it already feels overwhelming. Your comments, uh, both of you, uh, Katya and Chris, your comments about optimization and not you know, whether you want to look yeah. at the cheat sheet or not, uh, are are really, really interesting because, uh, you know, if you don't have the cheat sheet, um, it's sort of like going back to, I don't know, like mm-hmm. fighting games in, in the 90s where they didn't actually tell you like how you do, how you do the, uh, you know, scorpion spear or, uh, you know, Ryu's uh, dragon punch, um, you know, you know, going into the game that, that there are these sets of commands or procedures for you to do that will produce the desired result. You know what the desired result is, but part of the joy is in the game is, is figuring it out kind of mm-hmm. on your own terms, right? That is developing your own understanding in a way that works for you that is not necessarily the, uh, the way that it's presented in the manual, Right. And, and this is this is sort of like, um, you know, different theories mm-hmm. of learning, right, that that some people learn, learn better when they figure things out for themselves. Other people learn better when they have something explained to them in a procedure that they can memorize. Right. And, and I think you're maybe talking about, again, two different ways of approaching uh, a game like this. Um, that is, does 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 one person want to sort of learn what the procedure is and then just execute it as well as possible or does the other person want to sort of go in without any clue as to what the procedure is and the experience for them is actually just figuring it out and 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 that's the game yeah i just made based on what you were saying like a really uh maybe a big leap but a connection to just like pedagogical theories and the difference between the way certain charter schools handle education and the way a school like Montessori would handle that kind of question of like, how how do we learn and what is the best way to learn? And is there a kind of, as we were talking about before, is there like some kind of moral aspiration that we should try to achieve when we're, whether it's learning to play our video games or learning Mm -hmm. other things? Well, yeah. And I think like, uh, like video game pedagogy is actually something I teach a lot. Like, so for people who are interested in like teaching theory, like gamification, whether it's digital or otherwise has become like a really big sort of like trend in, in teaching and like finding ways to like gamify stuff. Cause it, as the idea is that it motivates students because they, it gives them like really concrete goals and a sense of achievement. Even if it's just like, literally they get a gold star at the end of the day, like 
that makes people feel good because they can do something and they can see an immediate outcome. And it produces like sort of a meaningful, more meaningful experience than just like turning in an assignment and going like, well, I did that. I wouldn't know a thing about gaming in the classroom. Oh no, never. Hannah's never taught video or taught uh, board games or card games of any kind. Um, uh, sorry, that, that, that was just uh, me making a joke that I guess only Katya get. I, I begin every day with a game in the classroom. <laughs> I picked up on it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I could tell. Do you, do you want to talk about why you do that? Well, I mean, like, okay, so I teach in the 19th century, and in particular, I've taught a lot of long Victorian novels, and I don't know if any of you have read Charles Dickens, like, not a Christmas Carol, but like, you know, one of his 800 pagers, like Little Dorrit or Bleak House. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just, oh, I that, that your teacher school. was very brave, um, <laughs> but you know, like. <clears throat> There's a lot going on in a Dickens novel. And I mean, the 19th century novel is much more modern and much more widely read than sometimes people think, but it's still, you know, hard for certain students. So I use games as a way for students to review or look at things in a different way. Um, you know, like doing something like playing Who Am I as like, you know, with minor Dickens characters. And if you read Dickens novel, you know, there's like 20 billion of them. Um, you can like, you know, simulate the networks that go on in a Dickens novel and the way that mm -hmm. like London works um, as characters circulate in and out and how different hierarchies yeah, of people the, bump into each other. Um, yeah, it's like the procedures of a Dickens novel. Yeah, and, it, and it's and it's far more effective for them to like see that and like learn a lesson by doing than me just being like, oh, hey, like poor little like, you know, Chimney Sweep Joe is going to run into, like, Lady Deadlock at some point. What does this mean? You know, it. so uh, games are definitely a way of, like, thinking about things or, like, seeing things from a different point of view. And this is another episode for another time, but, you know, there's been a lot of, like, board games and, like, role-play games made out of Jane Austen novels. One, because Jane Austen's super popular, and two, because, like, there's already gamification in a lot of the things we do and a lot of strategy in other types of work. Like, you know, you see like how people go their way through the marriage market. Honestly, what goes mm -hmm. on in certain aspects of Pride and Prejudice isn't that much different than like giving gifts to randos in Harvest Moon and making them like you. Yeah. And I think <laughs> the effective thing about like games in disciplines where there's like rules or systems like when you're talking about the marriage market like games are really good because they can sort of like take a, what is a really abstract concept with a lot of which in in Jane Austen has a lot of variables within the novel and sort of simplify it into something that students can enact um and they sort of get something out of that and I think which is I mean in some ways what procedural rhetoric is getting at, at that it, the idea is that it's like when you're playing a video game even if you're not in a classroom that's still happening you're still learning the game and then if you are paying attention, you can get the message out of it. I think what Bogos is talking about, where his five-year-old gets that message out of playing Animal Crossing, I'm much more skeptical of. Uh, was there anything... I mean, I guess, David, I wanted to ask you, since you uh, have been talking about Fallout 4, is that we've mainly been talking about games that are specifically a farm simulator, but you mentioned several games that have like farm simulators or something similar, similar as a side option like i don't i i like I, I actually was actually surprised in fallout 4 that there was this entire like 
subplot where you can build colonies and you could just build colonies endlessly it seems that's basically what i've been doing yeah yeah what do you think uh what do you think is like the motivation for that because that's not a part of any other fallout games yeah um it is i I hear that it's not a part of fallout 76 so i have no no interest in that game uh also it sounds like it's it's not a good game but um oh sadness yeah uh so that's that's a really great question that's a fascinating uh I guess part of it is the idea of emergent gameplay, right? That this is a, this is really its own game that starts as being a part of another game and becomes its own thing. Right. Uh, And I think another, another aspect that makes it so appealing is this idea of a, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with, right? The idea of a, of a creative constraint that Fallout 4 yeah. is this first person, you know, role-playing game, right? That has some ability for you to build stuff and plant stuff. And if you actually say, okay, I'm going to take this game and my main objective now is not to go fetch all these items and unlock these vaults and whatever, uh, but actually my main objective is to build up all of my settlements as much as possible with, you know, eight story tall buildings and uh, three different restaurants and, uh you know, several different kinds of garden and you can have restaurants. Uh, you can, yeah. I mean, you can, so you, you can, uh, build, you know, first it starts out with, you can build like a, like a bar or a drink stand. And then once you, um, upgrade your, uh, community leader and trading abilities, then, then, it, oh. then it, gets, it gets replaced with like an actual like restaurant service area. And so you can, you can build this interior Fancy. space that has, you know, a service area and, people who work there who will wait, wait the tables and you can set up tables that people will come sit at and order food. And, um, uh, I, I've sort of been in the same, I think this, this idea of taking a game that gives you some limited ability to do something that is not really the game's main point, And you take that limited ability and accomplish things that in other games you do easily Right. Because that's the point of the game and it's designed for you to do that. But in this game, Mm -hmm. you have to create all these fun workarounds uh, that then allow you to do something new that is not really part of the game. Um, it's, it's sort of, I think some of the same appeal as Easter eggs. Right. But, Mm -hmm. but with the, with, with, again, we were, we were talking about the uh, sort of the through line, knowing that there is this, uh, set of procedures you can follow to produce this result and then taking that and really pushing uh, pushing the different kinds of results you can get and making them synergize in order to take this game and all of a sudden now Fallout 4 is actually just SimCity. And some, some people have actually modded Fallout 4 to include scripts like SimCity where you can take your base yes, and, and zone it for commercial and zone it for industrial or agricultural or residential. And then your settlers will just start building stuff on their own. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's just it's, it's cool. Um, and I mean, I've, I noticed the same thing with like real time strategy games like Starcraft, where someone decides they're actually much more interested in the base building part of it. And they never really bother to go attack their opponents. And then of course they get killed, but mm, awkward. Yeah. It's like, it's like what we were talking about earlier. It's not just you're making your own meaning out of your actions. It's just, you're just making an entirely new game within a game. So you're making, 
yeah, so it's like the magic circle thing. You're making a new magic circle within a magic circle mm, yeah. in the world. Yeah. So like having a nested universe thing. And you're 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 creating your own objectives that are you know at at least tangential, if not completely un, unrelated to the the stated objectives of, of the game. Which I guess is also the appeal of Stardew Valley. Like there's not like the objectives in Stardew Valley are minimal. So in some sense, you have to create, whether it's the optimization or just sort of like wandering around. Uh, I mean, I, of course, named my farm uh, Walden Pond because uh, I'm a nerd, which is also why I have a giant bean field whenever they're in season. Um, but even that, like, I think is an example of like, I'm creating my own meaning out of something that's given me a relatively blank slate. Like I get to decide what I want to do, which is not only not a thing that you get to do in a lot of like in every video game, but it's also not a thing that you always get to do in your daily life. Like I get to have complete control within this, the parameters of the game, but I have completely control. And I also know more or less what all the outcomes are going to be in advance. Because once I figure out that like, Oh, if I put this in the ground and I water it every day, it becomes a thing. Everything becomes very predictable. And that's in some way, well, kind of uh, important question. Chris, what did you name your farm in Stardew Valley? Oh, uh, baby boys farm. You you broke the trend of very yeah. nerd. Uh, actually, yeah. What's it's your farm, Hannah? Because of Chris, that I named my farm in a weird way. Uh, so uh, he keeps going on Uh-oh. about this Thomas Hardy novel called The Woodlanders, and I decided I decided to pick a wood like a yeah. forest farm. So I named so I so I named my farm. Mine's Woodlander farm because it seemed nice, and I was right. I'm right on Thomas Hardy, but not the Woodlanders. So, but actually, but actually, if you're talking about you know novels that what? talk about like farming and like happy moments on the farm, no matter how they end, Thomas Hardy. More importantly, Hannah, do you have a warren of bunnies on your farm? Not yet. <sighs> Anecdotally, uh, when I was playing Roller Coaster Tycoon uh, many years ago, I built this roller coaster that was castle themed that I decided to call the Castle of Otranto. Oh my god! (laughs) Well, I think on that note, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap the show. As always, uh, we have solved absolutely nothing. Um, Thanks everybody for coming today. does anyone have anything they want to plug, Hannah? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at <clears throat> Hannah Lee Rogers. And now the Mississippi election is over, so my tweets will probably decrease about Mississippi politics by like, I don't know, 20%. Cool. Uh, David, is there anywhere, uh, you anything you'd like to plug or anywhere our listeners can find you on the internet? Uh, I don't have anything particular to plug. Um, you can find me at uh, david-stifler.com uh, if you're interested in my thoughts about teaching classics and uh, some decent photographs of me. Exciting. <laughs> uh, Chris, anything on your end? No. <laughs> you want to be ever enigmatic. You want to remain anonymous. I mean, hey, man, I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not disrespecting it. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, so if you'd like to follow on along with more of our yammerings, remember to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever fine to mediocre podcasts are downloaded. And please leave us a review on any of those platforms. It really helps uh, new people find the show. Uh, and check us out also on our blog at vopopvoxpopcast.com. 
Uh, I can use words. Uh, where you can also join in on the discussion or on our Facebook uh, page at Vox Popcast. Um, so thank you again to our panel for coming to chat, and thank you, and thank you, listener, for listening. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Maximilian at Thoughtform Music for our theme music. Uh, and on that note, I hope you have a lovely week and goodbye. at my babies. This tomato will be Heinz ketchup and this tomato will be Hans ketchup. <coughs> Tastes like cigarette butts. That's on. The outside looks like a tomato, but the inside is brown. Maybe the tomato seeds crossbred with the tobacco seeds. Oh great, I got a field full of mutants. Gimme, I want more. I thought you said it tasted terrible. It does. But it's smooth and mild. And refreshingly addictive. Mm, mm. Addictive, eh?